Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more. This is In Conversation, the video podcast of Banyan Books and Sound. I'm your host, Farah Nasrali, and today I'm in conversation with Karina Stone, the wife of Michael Stone, and Aaron Robinson, the editor of his book, The World Comes to You. Michael Stone was an internationally recognized yoga and Buddhist teacher, author, and host of Awake in the World podcast. His sudden and tragic death at the age of 42 was a shock to the yoga community and to the community that he helped build. And it's such an honor for me to be here with Karina and Aaron to speak about the legacy of his teachings and, and what it meant personally, what it means to work on the book and share and keep his teachings alive. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. I want to start off by asking you, I've never um, attended personally the, the retreats or seminars or workshops of Michael Stone, but when I read the book, I really felt there was a very real presence and I could feel something that was very alive that came through the choice of words and the cadence and rhythm. What was it like to work on the book? Well, it was, for me, it was really two experiences that, I mean, I started working on the book when he was alive and it was actually a few months before his death. And, um, and that was, um, what he asked me to do was, was take um, transcripts of some of his talks of ones that he had decided he really wanted to turn into a book and asked me if I would work with these and edit them and help him make the book that, that uh, it became. Um, so there was that part where we were working back and forth and we had this um, beautiful relationship in terms of editing that we'd had for many years. So I, I'd really, in the beginning of it, I really felt, you know, that we were making the book um, that I think both of us had been kind of wanting to make for a long time in, in the ways that I'd been working on his, um, on his writing, um, which was that it really came from, is directly from his, from his teaching, um, from, from his talks, which were just so, so alive and so um, just connected with people on such a, incredible level so there was that and then um so it was really a dream to get to turn these into then something for the page which um was different but in some ways we wanted well exact what we wanted to do was really keep that energy and those words and that um humor and just all of the things that made him such an incredible teacher um and and then there was the experience of working on it after he couldn't answer uh my questions about things or rewrite things or so that was a whole other experience that was also very rich and very 
incredible and very connected to him and, mm. and to, connected to Karina. And um, we really worked on it together after his death. Karina, what was it like for you? Um, it was it was a lot of things. Uh, firstly, it was it was too hard to approach for a very long time. It was delayed um, quite a few times before I was able to engage it. Um, and I remember the first time I I tried to, I was on the way to a breach clinic in Vancouver to see if my baby could be turned. I was thirty six and a half weeks pregnant and. We found out he was breech and I had this sudden free time away from the kids because I was going on the ferry by myself to with my father but without kids to see if the baby could be turned and and I thought okay I really have this window let me let me open this up and dive into it and and it was it was so much like to to open that at that point and that and that part of my gestation and getting close to the birth. And I, I had to close it and leave it for many more months after the baby had been born. And, and then when I was really able to, um, to engage the work, I, um, yeah, it was a mixture for me of familiar, familiar, a familiarity with the process of Michael working on other material when he was alive. And me coming in, I, I used to come in at the end of things when he'd say, this is what I've got, like, how does this sound? And we'd hash it out on the kitchen floor after the kids were in bed and sit there with a pen and paper and he'd read me things and I'd say, oh, I don't know, what about, what about this? I'm not sure what you're saying. And so in a certain way, that was very familiar and, and he was very alive to me in that process. And, um, and then when it started to wrap up, I had this feeling of, oh no, like this is finite and here he goes again, and this is the end of this process. And thankfully, and as these things go, there were many layers of like getting proofs back and whatnot. So it did get to go on and on for quite some time. And the whole thing really did feel like collaboration. And, and working with Aaron certainly felt, I felt like it was very much like me and Michael and Aaron, like going back and forth between various things. And I, I would say, well, like, oh, what if, you know, this could be slightly different here and then it might be more clear. And I'm, I'm really into clarity. <laughs> and, 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 but, and Michael, like Aaron would have said, but wait a minute, there's like, there's poetry in that phrase and the way that's phrased. And that's more important than the clarity in that moment. And, or saying it in the way it said, says something, you know, with more, more color and different and difference and depth. And anyhow, so it really felt, I really felt uh, Aaron's commitment to his voice. And I felt this, this like complex, like life and death dialogue happening mm -hmm. with, with Michael and with the work. And, and, and I feel that in this book so much, I feel like he's, he he is he's gone and he's really in this material and that's that's a comfort and and there's sadness yeah both i i was even wondering if working on the book and being reminded of some of the practices and some of the the wisdom was a source in mm. in dealing with the grief and the loss mhm mm um for me for me, I feel like this book comes from his life. And I think when you read it, you'll feel, you feel him, you feel his candidness and you catch glimpses of his mental health and, and his candidness with that. Um, for me, what resonates 
with me in the book is also what supports me in my grieving process and losing him. And it, I don't feel like I'm learning it for the first time in the book because the book comes from Michael and Michael comes from relationship and our family and, and, um, and not just as a teaching, but as like, um, a partner and and that's like so intimate so i feel him i feel him in me i feel him in my mind i feel him in my day and in my children and so i feel like what supports me in the book are things that i learned from him in life also um and in the book there are certain moments that really really reflect something something really crisply to me that i really feel supported um from him by in life and in the book. And I have one example, if I may. Um, in chapter 21, he talks about going on a hike in Japan and in Kyoto, and he really needs to pee and he finds a Shinto temple and he asks, where's the bathroom? Can I find the bathroom? And they say downstairs and they point downstairs and he, he walks down the stairs and it's, it's dark and he gets into this open space where there's uh, many, many candles and I believe urns also, and it's it, there's a caretaker, a Shinto priest, who's maintaining the candles and maintaining the altar, and and he sees the altar and he goes to light some incense, and bows down underneath the curtain, and when he looks up, there's a mirror, and so he sees his face, and cries, and that's the whole, you know, for him that's the whole practice, and in that moment, and just in that moment that 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 was his response to be vulnerable and to receive, to receive um, that message of the practice is your life. It's showing up in your own life exactly right now. Um, and that's what's on the altar. That's what we bow to. And I felt that in being his partner, I felt that in him all the time, his curiosity and his, his um, engagedness with his own interpersonal self and interpersonal self. Uh, he was constantly curious about his way in the world. And for me, that's in the book very richly. And that was in his life richly. And that supports me so much uh, because everything remains a question. And especially after losing him, uh, everything's very much a question constantly. And, and, and knowing and having learned from him I, and feeling his curiosity, I feel like I feel the resiliency to, to engage that um, with curiosity sometimes. <laughs> I, I remember very clearly the chapter you're talking about because it was so touching. Um, mm. I forget what the question was, but Aaron, was there something in the, <laughs> in the book that really spoke to you that um, spoke of, of Michael and who he was and how he lived his life? <laughs> Yeah, yes. I mean, I think that it's a really magic book in this way that I, even when Michael was alive, as I was reading and shaping um, this material, it seemed to always, several times it would relate to exactly what was going on in my, in my life um, that was hard, that I didn't want to be in, in uh, the way that it was. So when I started working on the book, I was breaking up with my long-term partner and everything that the book was saying was, was helping me 
get through this, which was such a, it was such a strange situation in some ways as an editor, because it would be, I was supposed, you know, it never really works like this, but I was supposed to be like working on the material, but the material was working on me at the same time. And so I think that, I think that um, when I say that the book is very magic, I think I just mean that in every page, um, it's, it's Michael really helping or showing the way to see um, what's really going on in um, whatever situation that is in a way to become friends with that in a way to even um, engage with it in a way that's very different than, um, than I might otherwise engage, which would, you know, to want to have things be different, to, um, to want things to be simpler or better or happier. And, um, but I think what this book and, and, and really what, the kind of teacher that Michael is in this book and is, was in his life and continues to be in, in all of his work. It's really, um, really just helping, helping people make friends with what's going on and what's really happening. And in that friendship that there's so much, um, there's a kind of um, a different kind of engagement that becomes, it was still very, like it was very, very, very difficult and remains very difficult to get through the loss of my friend and my um, teacher and you know, all the things that Michael was to me. But I think there is a way that the material in this book in this very kind of meta way was also helping me to um, be with his death in a very different way than I might otherwise. And he did that in, in his life too. He really, uh, all, all of the time that I knew Michael, he was giving me language for, um, for death and for hard things and um, for experience and for reality. And, so sorry, that's a very long answer now. So um, mm -hmm. yes, I think that it, I think that this book gave me a lot of tools for, for um, dealing with his death and so many other things. And that's one of his real gifts. You know, as I hear you speak, I'm reminded of one of the chapters in which he talks about the pond skater insect mm -hmm. and it's a chapter called fluidity and really spoke to me just about the nature of reality not being a concrete existent thing but a dynamic fluid thing and i'm wondering if either of you can can speak to that in terms of your own experience of that in your life or even as it relates to the book and that specific chapter yeah, I think throughout the book, Michael is um, Michael is encouraging this um, possibility of building a life out of that which is changing, which um, is not what most of us are doing most of the time. So often, <laughs> and 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 for me, with losing him, uh, although I, we lived with knowing. He lived with bipolar and there's a fragility there and we knew that that fragility was there 
we had this sense, I had this sense that this is our, this is our narrative and this is what's going to happen. And we're, we have this family and I've planted orchard trees that are going to fruit. And here we are in this, on this island and, um, and the sense of things are going to unfold in this sort of predictable way. And, you know, knowing there is this fragility, but losing him erased all of that. Everything that was, everything that was predictable and knowable um, was, was dissolved. And we still, we were in the same house for some time and then had to move and, and, and our family looked different and the future was a question and what the future was gonna look like and it remains a question. And, and, and I think that experience really has shown me that those things are, they're always questions. And the, the facade that they're not is um, possibly a source of great suffering, actually. But um, I think the pond skater has the benefit of its actual habitat is, is ever-changing, an ever-changing surface. So they don't have that, that facade of like, uh, you know, solid ground. And I think that's for um, the pond skater as a meditation or as a metaphor for the meditator is that actually things are constantly changing and our minds are constantly changing. Things are arising and falling. And, um, and so making a home in that and becoming comfortable with that um, is, a, is a way of learning how to navigate, um, navigate what's actually really happening all the time, which is flux. And um, yeah, I don't know, Erin, if you want to say more. Um. I just, I, I think I just love this kind of mascot or um, metaphor for, uh, for the, the idea of groundless ground that, especially because it's such a Michael um, metaphor, it's just, it's so funny in a way, like this long-legged insect that sort of magically, but also through physics can walk on water and that's how it lives and it senses um, all kinds of things through the vibrations on the water and it, it really is um, just I think a very helpful metaphor that's also very real in the world. How else one could be in relation to change and the fact that things aren't solid and, and, and keep living in that. <laughs> and as I'm, I'm listening, I'm also thinking about the juxtaposition of the other chapter, which is on, you know, um, taking an everyday activity and making it sacred and, and bringing a different energy to it. Like he gave several examples of that and, and how important sometimes um, ritual or specific activities can be grounding in context of a very fluid changing reality and i'm i'm wondering if either of you have have done that have taken everyday activities and and made a ritual out of it as a way of finding that sense of groundedness and um way of reconnecting to breath and reconnecting to something that's very real and tangible um. Yeah, certainly. I think my children give me lots of opportunities for for practicing and and for me um, responding to them from a place of not reacting to uh, 
in a patterned way or in a way that I learned. Um, that's, that's like the most meaningful site of practice for me is that gap between something happening with a child of mine and, and my ability to respond and, and to respond in a way that's uh, responding to what's happening underneath what appears to be happening. And so taking, taking a moment for that. Um, that's, yeah, that's my, that's my greatest sight. And I just got baby goats. I'm not, I got two baby goats and one five-year-old goat who's fully in milk. So I'm nursing her. I'm milking her every night. And, and there's, it's like blowing my mind how meditative it is. like such a wonderful practice that the first night I did it, I was actually out there in the dark and milking her into this pail in the dark. It took an hour and I had no idea what I was doing. I sort of, I had an idea what I was doing, but really it wasn't, I was a novice and, and just feeling her udder and the milk filling up and, and it's all like body, mind, you like so in sync and in sync with Fawn, the five-year-old doe. And um, yeah, that's like a wonderful practice that I'm doing every night right now, but I recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a morning practice that I've been doing for the past few months. I, I, I tend to change mine. Um, so it's, uh, I've been doing this one where like I, I get up really early, which is not my natural state at all. And, um, <laughs> and I used to, I used to like put on the kettle and then go back to bed and like reset the alarm and get up on the kettle. Well, there was just this very um, kind of painful, horrible process of waking up. But um, what I've been doing the last few months that uh that has really kind of changed my entire day is i put in the kettle and then and then i just look out the window and really try to like really see what's out the window which is the same window every day it's the same tree um mm -hmm. and and just breathe and look out the window and um it's so simple and i just do that while the, the kettle is boiling and it literally just opens up time. It's like exactly the time I just want to go back to sleep and where like five minutes happens in like one second and I'm like, oh God, I have to get up. But really just like, it's, it's just like opening up the moments of, of um, the time it takes the kettle to boil and, um, mm. and it changes my day, like almost more than doing sitting meditation for me right now. It's just really seeing and I started to notice all the all the birds who are around and the fact that they always seem to be flying only to the right and, <laughs> uh, and the tree just as it was like changing every day because it was I'm in Montreal and it was dead and dead looking at the beginning of this practice and now it's in this total full leaf and um, so that's been mine lately Uh, you know, both of you mentioned uh, in describing those practices, space, uh, Karina, you mentioned the word gap. And one thing that I really resonated with in the book is the connection between that space mm -hmm. and gap and creativity and imagination. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about how, how creativity can spontaneously emerge from that space or gap when we're not in habitual response to our life and our surroundings and the people around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, Michael was really interested in patterns and, um, 
and the patterns that we move are that we move through or that we're con constrained by to respond in particular ways that are habitual and um and so the gap the gap is is the place where that pattern stops for a moment um and in in buddhist meditation when you move through the noble truths it's where you you stay with something and 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 there's a stopping and in that gap something something new can happen um but ultimately that's where there's space and the space can be calm and there can be contentment there and and there can be um a creative response um for me that happens with my kids that's that's my greatest goal is that that happens with my children um since michael died that uh, a massive rupture happened and that's also a gap and and for me um what that means to me now is is i i feel like i'm creatively re-engaging myself like who am i now and how am i changed and um what do i need what uh do i want um what are my desires and um and so and and in, in a strange way like it's it's a gift you know there's a gift there in in being able to really reflect on who who I am now, and I'm not sure that I'd be engaging it this fully um, if he hadn't died. Um, yeah, I think that's the end of my thought. <laughs> Thank you. I was so into what Karina was saying that I've, I've forgotten the question. The question, um, if you feel inspired to answer, is about imagination and creativity and the connection to that gap or space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, it's um, like when I, when I started doing meditation, I was very interested in this idea that this paradoxical seeming idea that somehow emptying emptying out and being still could be actually this really rich source of imagination but i didn't i didn't i couldn't put that together for myself and i was a bit scared of it i was like i don't want to this is the opposite of what i want to do creatively is empty out or be still oh. um, and but i think now it feels meditation practice and meditative practices and practices in general really um, are the biggest source I think of imagination because they <clears throat> they change I think I was thinking of it as this difference as sort of the separation between doing and being um, which now seems so such a ridiculous kind of this versus this situation, because I, I think that making art and, and imagination and creativity and all the ways that we're just creative in our daily lives comes out of a state of being, whatever the state of being is that we're in. And I think what practice does for me is 
in that gap shows me all the or, or presents myriad possibilities for perception and and for being and and um, and so there's so many choices available at all times, whether it's in making a sentence or whether it's in even just looking at something. Um, I think often of this thing that John Cage said, uh, which is someone that I think Michael is very interested in as well. Um, and he said, looking closely helps. And um, so I think these are all connected to the ways that um, that practice for me is this imaginative practice of, of perception and of, uh, and of looking closely. And that for me is really an endless source of, we call it creativity. That's just there already. You know, on, on that note of perception and creativity, Karina, how would, how do you, how would you like your children to, perceive their father and mm. who he is and who he was and how does creativity and possibility play into that piece? I, yeah, that's, that's something I think about a lot. Um, How do I want them? I, I want them to know him the most intimately that they can. And that's, that's going to be a, a challenge, I think. And um, I feel like we have this time when my kids are, our kids are little where they aren't, are, aren't exposed to all of his work. You know, they are exposed to his family stories and his photos and all of our memories and uh, our little pilgrimages to favorite spots and um to me that's like he's in that so in such an important way and just his way of being in the world and his humor and um and his commitment to what's most important to them like i want them to feel that um most <laughs> and i i have a i have a bit of a fear like oh my gosh the most material that's out there uh, it, it overwhelms our family album, you know, uh, all of his talks and, and written works and audios material. It's far more than we have collected in our, in our, uh, what we have family photos and our, we have our stories, but uh, once they're teenagers and they can read and they're out there, I, I worry about the balance of them knowing him intimately the way he was in our home, um, singing and making breakfast and like blitzing through all the dishes and and you know like having a great idea about what to do for the day and like lots of energy like that feeling that's domestic I want them to have that and yeah so that comes through our story retelling stories and looking at photos and and trying to hold him in the home as much as we can we have an altar for him and we'd say good night to him when we remember to and <laughs> and light a candle for him and show him things. My oldest son lost his first tooth last night. And oh yeah, I know. <laughs> and he asked the tooth fairy to keep it so he could put it on the altar to show his dad. And, and that's how I want them to feel him, you know? Um, and, and I really imagine that he's going to be a spiritual father for them in so many ways. And 
through his formal teaching also. And at some point they're really going to want to engage that. And uh, I look forward to that in terms of creative, creatively imagining him. I guess that's where I, where I worry too. It's like, I, I want him to be himself with them. And I hope that somehow how they creatively imagine him matches that at least, at least um, somewhat closely. <laughs> Um, and and part of that too is is all the all the depths of of him, you know, uh, um, all the ways that he was imperfect and the ways that he could be frustrated. And um, I think with when kids lose a parent when they're really little, um, there's this idealizing a parent phase that's still happening when they're really little, and they didn't get to to like really see his is his side so much maybe in a way that they'll really retain and remember and that's important i think where parents are complex and dynamic and they're not just superheroes so um yeah i guess i hope that i hope that we we can hold him in the home in a way where he's dynamic yeah as i was listening to you speak i also was just reminded of another dimension to Michael Stone and his teachings that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. And that is just the mm -hmm. commitment to action in the world and what's happening in the world at large and on the planet. And, mm -hmm. and um, one of the things that I really deeply loved in the book was the rewriting of the Bodhisattva vows, mm -hmm. which I, I feel really spoke so much to that. I'm wondering if you can, either speak on that dimension of Michael or, or even uh, share what it, that process or even read the vows with us. Um, yes, I can. I have them in front of me here. Um, so the story we're talking about, um, there's a chapter in the book that talks about Bernie Glassman and how Bernie Glassman, who um, a great Zen teacher, American Zen teacher, um, uh, made his practice bearing witness to suffering and in his context in New York, um, he, uh, you know, perceiving the homelessness and social struggles in the city, he created a, he, a foundation at the Greystone Foundation uh, that founded a bakery where they employed homeless people. And uh, I mean, it's a longer story and I can't tell it perfectly, but, um, Ultimately, they became very successful and have, I believe, a, possibly a still continuing contract with Ben and Jerry's where they are creating brownies for many of their recipes, but they're employing homeless people and, um, and raising money and all this money is going towards supporting um, community needs in many very important ways. And, um, and their community mandala just grew and grew and grew um, through, this, through this business. And um, Michael, Michael and I actually went to the Zen Peacemakers Conference in Massachusetts as one of our, I wouldn't say first dates, but like first trips together. And, and that's where he met um, Bernie and asked him um, about this project of his. And, and so anyhow, this is the context in this chapter whereby we, um, we also talk about the Bodhisattva vows that we would chant on retreat. Um, and they, um, as Michael, says in the book, they express an effort towards the impossible. So the, the, the Bodhisattva vows read, um, you would repeat these three times. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. 
desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. Um, and Ber Bernie's advice to Michael was to choose battles that are small enough to win, but big enough to matter. And so over time, and it was partly through Michael and I talking about what's really, um, what do we really need now? We live in this time where we hear nonstop about climate change, like we're beyond, beyond, you know, these social issues and so many impossible things and all these, the, the impossibility of so many of these social issues are, are possibly paralyzing. And, and these, and these vows that are, are an effort towards the unattainable are, are, um, are, are possibly in this cultural context where we're facing really paralyzing stuff. Um, what do we need to hear now? Like, what do we need to hear now that we can really achieve things that are small, so, achievable, not necessarily small, but so we, over time we changed the vows and, and this is probably taboo <laughs> that we changed. This was for I our, loved it. this was I for our community, right? And, <laughs> and um, you know, I'm, all the Roshis out there, like, this was for us. Um, beings are numberless. I vow to serve them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. The awakened way is unattainable. I vow to embody it. I think for Michael, this was similar to like eating local food. You know, like what can you do? Like what can you really do that's like possible and within grasp of your life and impactful? And, and yes, like even reaching towards the impossible is so important and we need that. And like what can we do and what can we do now and how can we respond now? And for, for Michael, that's, that's where those that's what those vows were reflecting. I, I believe I can't, he's not here to interject and say, well, actually I was, you know. <laughs> um, I think that's as much as I'll say about that. But I want, Erin, I wonder if you want to follow up. No, that was great. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering just in terms of looking at the book as a whole, um, what is your personal hope mm. for this book and for his legacy and for the impact um, of the book and even beyond? Um, I, I, I wish for the book that, I guess I have a lot of wishes for the book. I hope people like it. Um, I hope people feel Michael in it and um and just and and that people notice his vulnerability and and how much he's sharing and how much he's sharing in between the lines and um and i know what he would want is he would want people to feel inspired and to feel comforted and i hope that that comes through i believe it does 
and I wish for curiosity for those that that read the book to uh, to open to the curiosity they may have about themselves and uh, maybe Michael's work, but ultimately to to themselves and their own lives and relationships. And um, to to uh, the possibility that that um, folks who live with with atypical neurological beings offer, like Michael lived with bipolar, his his wiring was different. He could perceive things in a different way that made him vulnerable and that made him um, really tapped into to rich rich things. And um, I, I hope that in Michael's death and in this book, uh, some, something more can open towards folks who have so much to offer from the margins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll just, I will just add that I really hope that this book can be a, a companion for people in a really practical way where I think it offers, I think it offers real practical help and poetic help and imaginative possibilities. And I really hope that people can, my hope for the book is that people can truly take up the invitations that are all through this book. Um, or other ways to engage with what's going on personally, what's going on in their relationships, what's going on politically and environmentally in the world. Like in this book is divided into three sections, um, notes on practice, notes on love, and notes on social action. And so it's really deliberate that, that all of this whole, what seems like a spectrum of of subject matter is really deeply connected in all of Michael's work and and it's full of invitations but as Karina said there's a lot between the lines too and it is a very poetic book in that there's a lot um, for you to do as the reader mm -hmm. and that's intentional so that so that um, what emerges is is um, is really can be new every time. He doesn't say everything that he means. He often mm. gives these. And I think that's why it's a book of Dharma too, because mm. um, it's an invitation to engage with your life and with the material and, and what comes out of that. And so I hope that this book can really um, be a good companion in that way and a real, and a teacher and a friend, which it really has been for me all the way through. The last question I have is, um, you know, you mentioned the book being divided into three things and we've talked about two of them. We've talked about practice. And we've talked about social action. What, Karina, what final words can you say about love and what, what you've learned about love from Michael and the life that you lived? Mm. Hmm. 
Um, from what I learned from Michael, just love, love everyone so much as hard as you can all the time. And um, I think that's in those chapters too. And what's underneath the love part really, again, is impermanence. And um, I think Michael really felt, felt impermanence in his life. And so his love was very big. And, uh, and so the practice of, of, of feeling impermanence and being willing to sense impermanence. Um, yeah, I think that's just like fertilizer for love. So let it in. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> um, and, and cause it's, it's not gonna, that part doesn't go away. Well, I can't think of a better way to end our time together <clears throat> on that note of the enduring quality of, of love um, and the reminder of that, uh, the truth of impermanence. So I want to um, thank both of you. It's really been moving to me personally to both have the opportunity to read the book and also connect with both of you here through the miracles of cyberspace. Hmm. Thank you so much. And um, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.